Hello, friends, and welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Courtney Staples. On today's episode, we have a brand new prompt from our patron, Cam. Uh, but before we get into it, of course, we have to shout out our newest patron, John. So, John, thank you so much for your patronage. Deeply appreciated. Uh, you get a little smooch on the cheek from me, Daniel, and Courtney in whatever order you prefer. Uh, non-transferable and non, uh, well, you can't actually get it in real life. Anyway, we, we've got a podcast and we've got a Patreon, but if you want us to build your world, you can go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, where you can click the link, follow the instructions, and within a reasonable amount of time, we'll be building your world. If you want to follow us on social media, you can go to X, I guess, which is what it's called oh now. God. Yeah, yeah, it's it's X now, you guys. Um, the fantastic dumpster fire. It it is absolutely a dumpster fire. I've been saying this for a while. We really need to find an alternative to that dumpster fire. Uh, but we kind of did because we now have a YouTube, and our YouTube channel is new-ish. It's new to you, right? Especially if you haven't gone there to subscribe, like, and do the comments and all that stuff, or Really, it's just there if you want an alternative method to listen to the podcast and support the podcast indirectly. If you want to come join our Discord and chat with us directly, hey, we've got one of those. We've got you covered. And of course, if you're feeling particularly generous, like our newest patron, John, you can always go to our Patreon and give us money there. Support us uh, for whatever reason, right? Or let, let's be real. This isn't just like a a one-way street here, you get access to sweet, sweet patron-only goodies like the Aphid Lounge, which is an entire series of patron-only episodes that is available once you become a $5 patron or more, and you get other stuff like, hey, a two-episode length for your prompts. So if you decide that you want to send in a prompt and you're like, wait a minute, this needs to have a little bit more to it, bam, we've got you. And with all of that out of the way, we're going to get right into today's prompt. And again, this is coming from our patron, Cam. Cam, thank you so much. And the prompt, this one is short and sweet, but it's got it's got a little meat to the bone. So the prompt is an alternate history Earth where 10 to 20 mechs were sent down to Earth around 300 BC. The tenets, there's only two. One, these mechs would be less humanoid and more along the lines of Darren Quash's mech drawings. Uh, I would strongly recommend going to check those out. They're very cool. A lot of them are like quadrupedal. Some of them are like spider-like. Go check it out. There, there's some like regular bipedal ones in there too. But for the most part, they're, they've got an interesting design for sure. And number two, the mechs would be very hard to destroy. So we've got two tenets, simple, evocative. I'm very excited to get into it. So normally I would start with Daniel, but I know that Courtney hates Mecca. So I'm really interested to see what you did for this particular prompt. <laughs> um, yeah, I I don't really love Mecca. I'm not sure why. They just never resonated with me. And I had been thinking about what I could do to make them more interesting. And in our host group chat, jokingly said, my tenet will be that the mechs are obviously powered by blood. And Rob was like, actually, that's pretty cool so i'm gonna stick with that that these constructs do need to, <laughs> they do need some sort of blood or life force to come to life um 
whether it's like a literal, you know, pouring blood in to use as mm. fuel or more figurative, like saps your energy while you uh, pilot it. What do you guys think? I mean, I was the one who was like, yo, blood sacrifice, let's go. And like, yeah, I, I still support blood sacrifice in an ancient mecha setting for sure. It certainly fits the 300 BC um, time period. I mean, it fits all the way up until like the 1500s ish. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's yeah. I mean, realistically, if you want to, you know, if you want to substitute like labor for blood sacrifice, which it was effectively, then it goes really all the way up until like the 1900s, realistically speaking. So, well, and now really. Yeah. OK, shut up, Courtney. Yeah, you're <laughs> right. Yeah. But I was thinking like child labor specifically, because I know that you're trying to go with the child sacrifice angle. So although even that's well, not, not necessarily. Yeah. But also, yeah, child labor is kind of being a thing nope, again. Still a thing. Oh, yeah. yeah, I forgot about the America. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yep. And I mean worldwide too. It's definitely Oh, that yeah, that's always yeah. been a problem, right? Like no ethical consumption, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. But okay, yeah. Um, now about the blood sacrifice itself, right? Like you're leaving it fairly open. Is that something that we want to let kind of uh emerge naturally as we continue our prompt or our tenets rather? I think so. I, I'd be curious to see like what we can make fit in organically. Um, I did want to note though, Daniel, you said like uh, it fits in with 300 BC, but the prompt doesn't actually specify that yes. it has to be 300, which I didn't realize until like just a few minutes ago, actually. Yeah. What does it say that again? Let's see. So the, the mechs drop around. Oh, yeah, yeah, they were sent out. Yeah. yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I actually didn't do as much historical research as I normally would because I'm like, well, the prompt says that it starts around 300 BC, but it doesn't necessarily tell us where we need to like set the setting, right? Sure. I mean, I made an assumption that that would be relevant only because if oh, it yeah. stops in 300 BC, but our setting is taking place in 2010, then it's a completely irrelevant fact is my point. <laughs> Almost <laughs> right. Exactly. It's 300. Yeah, yeah. Right. Otherwise you're playing like, I mean, you could potentially... Um, say okay well what's different about history as a result of admitting a truth so early sure and that's what i did that's but, exactly what i was excited about daniel you know i love alt history i'm like well christianity's just gone straight up uh but sorry continue I'm, i i got excited you know you know how i get around history daniel <laughs> but i was say you certainly do that but then it's like i thought the mention that particular time period was interesting because he could have said mm -hmm. at some point in the past next were introduced right but he's at a particular period in time so that's mm. why i thought that was relevant yeah no I, I do think that it does matter um even if we don't set it like right when this is happening but within the the time frame where you'd still want to be seeing those very very direct impacts i guess right exactly like for, for example if we set the setting during like 300 to 200 bc that would be kind of like less interesting than if we did it like let's say 100 BC, for example, because then you really see the cultural and like the true changes that would actually have. This is like several generations into this Mecca existing at that point. I agree with Daniel that like going to like, let's see what the 1920s looked like with giant Mecca. Like that's less interesting overall. But I think that like, if we nail it down to like 100 BC to like maybe 100 CE, that might be interesting. So with the, we're saying within 300 years of that. Yeah. That's fine, yeah. yeah. Three to four hundred years, yeah. Okay. Uh, again, I, I think it's like kind of like the sweet spot because you get to see like how things truly change. Sure. Uh, and 
Daniel, why don't you kick us off next? Because it sounds like you've got some interesting time stuff going on as well. So what do you, what have you got for us with our alt history mecha? Uh, my tenant is the mechs have a living mortal interior, which goes with your blood uh, situation, but they're not carbon-based life forms. Interesting. So these are bio-organic uh, mechs that we're dealing with here then, right? Potentially, like, I'm thinking like Evangelion sort of things. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm glad that you brought that up because, like, if they're biomechanical, then that also suggests strongly that they're life forms, that they're sentient life forms as well, right? Oh, yeah, I suppose. Mm. And I imagine um, because they're not carbon-based, they're not from the Earth, which, you know, accords with what the tenant is saying. Yeah. Some of the language here is actually pretty interesting because um, it's not in my tenets at all. But one thing that I thought really interesting is that alternate history where 10 to 20 mechs were sent down to earth. So like Mm -hmm. that suggests that there is a deliberate choice to send mechs down rather than they crashed from an asteroid or they were always there in the bottom of the earth or something like that. It implies choice when you use that phrasing. Right. And by adding in Daniel's prompt about like non-carbon based life forms, that to me also suggests something deliberate as well, you know? Yeah. um, And it's, it's interesting. I had also been considering doing that as a tenant. Like they're they're not fully mechanical. There's more biology to them. But mm. I, I do feel like that works well with the blood sacrifice uh oh, yeah. tenant of mine where like maybe maybe it is literal blood that's being poured in, or like you hook yourself up to IVs or something inside so that it can like leach from you, or maybe over time you become a part of this thing or like you adapt into it or something. Oh, that's crazy. I like that a lot, actually. Mm. It kind of reminds me of the Phyrexians from Magic the Gathering. There was uh, a more recent set where uh, one of the Praetors of Phyrexia creates like an entire palace made up of uh, calcified organic creatures. And they see it as like a great honor because it's like, oh, I get to be part of like the etched uh, what it's the etched somethings from Elish Norn. It's, it's quite cool actually. So like she's sitting on this throne that's like made of ossified people. <laughs> that's cool. I mean, maybe that, that could relate to what these mechs are. Like if, do you like become a part of them if you use them long enough or something like that? Oh, so like there's like a, a collective consciousness to it almost like you're be. not only piloting with just the pilot, but like every pilot that came before effectively. Mm-hmm. Right. Daniel, it's your tenant. I'm just, I'm just spitballing here. Um, I just want to make sure that they're um kind of alien in nature. I suppose. Yeah. Like gotcha. the wording I've used here is just to kind of push them away from being like divine or magical beings. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that because I was not interested in kind of going a uh, magical or divine route either. Mm-hmm. Although culturally, I think it's acceptable for people to treat them as you know, like divine things, you know, like, Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, especially in this time period, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. exactly, exactly. Like I tend to look at religion from like a sociological or historical standpoint, which is why I said earlier that like Christianity is gone. It's because Christianity very, very much relies upon not entirely mind you, but like one of the most galvanizing events in human history is the Byzantine emperor converting to Christianity, right? There's the very famous battle where, you know, he gets a dream beforehand and says that, you know, if your Christian God saves us in this battle, then I will convert. 
and then there's like a star that streaks across the sky and they miraculously win the battle and that literally is one of the most crucial like you know center points for christianity spreading and and kind of becoming as majorly popular as it is right now i'm imagining that it dramatically changes things right we don't know what jerusalem is going to look like during the time of uh, you know, Jesus Christ is a historical figure. So like, we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know if the Roman emperor is there. We don't know if Pontius Pilate's going to be there. So like, realistically, there's so many fracture points that like, I'm just assuming that Christianity is going to be gone. Although we're focusing on a different time era at this point, I'm getting way too ahead of myself. And then I'm also thinking about like the Qin dynasty as well. But anyway, getting way off topic here, bringing it back again, very overly excited here. So I'm trying to like be cool about it a little bit. Um, <laughs> Failing miserably. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> okay. So my first tenet is warfare no longer exists and has been relegated to honorable single combat between two mechs. Um, I, I think that I had mentioned in our little chat where you mentioned blood sacrifice that if, if there's no warfare, which you can kind of see as blood sacrifice and kind of like an abstract sense, right? You can just replace that, right? So how much blood does this thing need? Well, that's still better than putting our population to the sword because combat back then was brutal. I mean, like some of the historical stuff that happened, like with the sacking and raising of cities and like the literal salting of the earth, it wasn't just about like, oh, we lost people. It's like, we not only lost our people, we lost our gods, we lost our city, we lost our way of living. So it wasn't just creating suffering in the moment, it was creating long-term suffering over generations, right? There was like such a spiteful blood feud aspect to it that frankly, I feel like single uh, mecha combat is kinder than actual combat in this regard. It makes me think of um, like an early Cold War sort of situation because I imagine these things are the equivalent of weapons of mass destruction from their perspective. And so it would make sense that they don't resort to empire building the same way anymore. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, that's right. what I was wondering. Like, what are the implications of how powerful these things are if they're replacing full on like full scale war? See, see, that's one of the interesting things, right, is that it directly changes how we view the world at that part, right? At that moment. Mm -hmm. This is this period have like the rise of the Roman empire. So in which case uh, a variety of these things would be different. You have kind of standstill with all the empires that are rising. Mm. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. the Roman empire was very much in its heyday during that time. Right. I like imagine if the, the Celts got access to uh, one <laughs> of these mecha and yeah. were able to like actually defend themselves against Rome. Right. Right. And that's the thing, right? Because we don't know who's actually getting the Mecca. It just says that it's 10 to 20. We don't know what the distribution is going to look like. We don't know which countries and which empires are going to be taking advantage. This is why I brought up the Qing dynasty as well, because that was the first unifying force in China. And if all of a sudden one of the rival factions suddenly makes it way more difficult because they have a Mecca and the Qing dynasty doesn't, well, you know, like now all of a sudden the entirety of Chinese history looks different, which means that the entirety of world history looks different. So yeah, like all of these like interesting pivot points around 300 BC are really fascinating to me. And um, we, we literally get to play Kingmaker here. It's kind of an interesting like 
game that we get to play in seeing what direction our alternate history takes. Um, I, I think it would be interesting if all the major players, you know, the Chinese, the Romans, the Carthaginians, the Celts, like all the, the ones that are really historically interesting might get a mech because then you can have all of these small little mini um, empires vying for control, but there's a standstill. And so it's more like a question of, you know, is political intrigue going to be enough or is um, these single combats going to be enough to make moves? See, one of the things that I really like about the single combat idea as well is that it suddenly changes the way that warfare works because suddenly, like you said, like espionage suddenly becomes way more important because, you know, the things are incredibly hard to destroy, but how hard are they to like gum up the works or like maybe make it so the joints are a little bit stiffer than they normally should be, right? So like sabotage or even like intelligence, you know, reconnaissance. What is the strategy of this mech? What is it using as a weapon this time, right? All of that matters. And so I think you can even have a world where the emphasis isn't ever on warfare. It is an emphasis on spycraft. And that's that's a potential that we have with big chivalric mecha fighting when they need to, stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's funny that you were talking about, you know, which places have what, because my second tenet is about Basically, that the mechs didn't all necessarily drop into one populated region, so like they don't necessarily all have to be like Rome and and China, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But they are scattered around the Earth and may not have all been discovered yet. I like that as well. I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, what that also implies, if we're tying it back into Daniel's like semi-conscious ideas, that it seems as though they need pilots to be like active. So it's not mm-hmm. like these things are roaming dragons or monsters you know it's like they require a pilot to be mobile and sentient effectively right i i think so but i guess we could potentially have them have like a a half asleep mode where they're still active Mm. but not under anything's control yeah maybe they require a pilot to do the really good stuff like actual combat but they can move by themselves well, the reason I want to like have them not be mobile on their own is because why haven't they been discovered even like on a horizon type thing? Unless they're like, unless this might be the case, actually, they're actively hiding from humanity, right? I mean, given like thinking about how remote a lot of the areas of the globe were back then, like maybe some some tribe somewhere saw what they thought was like a meteor on the horizon and they saw it hit the earth way far off but it's just too far away for them to reasonably explore at the moment or something yeah. like that I can imagine on sailing someplace and it's yeah, green for them. yeah. i mean it could be that they because we said blood fuels them like maybe it's a combination of things like blood is what they need in some capacity but also like maybe they're sluggish without a pilot or they're like you know you know kind of like a parasite needs like a, a host to fully function mm-hmm. it could be similar to that the implications with you suggesting parasitism, Daniel, is uh, is quite something. Although I suppose the foundation's there with Courtney's blood sacrifice. So mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. pretty valid as well. Also, yeah. I don't want to take away. Courtney, that was a fantastic segue. Like, yeah. amazingly <laughs> subtle. Absolutely love it. Like, got to give you props for that one. So amazing Thank segue, you. Courtney. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, I also have to imagine that there's definitely, like, 
some of these things that are just on the bottom of the ocean somewhere. Right? Yeah, I was thinking that too, or like embedded into a mountain and they can't actually get out of it or something. And you can have these all kind of ancient process of like them extracting things or lifting them up. And so you'd have to involve like the few very intelligent philosopher mathematicians that help them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's also pretty fascinating about that as well is that I love the idea of like a civil project where it's like, all right, we need as many men as possible to dig this thing out of a mountain. Right. And then there's like a battle over that particular excavation site or something like mm -hmm. that. And yeah. you know, this is obviously pre-Mecha combat, but like the idea that they're fighting over excavation sites to dig these things out. I think it's a pretty goddamn cool idea, you know, when you think about like the grand scheme of things. Yeah, because it could not just lead to um, getting access to the mech, but also to any resources in the area that might have been previously undiscovered. It could lead to them finding ruins of ancient civilizations that they didn't know about or mm. like skeletons of Neanderthals and things like that, that sort of mm. send their their own thinking in a different direction about mm. evolution and religion and, and so on. I mean, to add to that, that having a giant machine that can function as a crane or as a bulldozer in that time period would be drastically mm -hmm. helpful to construction efforts or any kind of large scale yeah. project. Like imagine you have a mech to help you build the pyramids. Like that's basically what they can do. Daniel, you don't have to imagine because that's literally my second tenet. Uh -huh. uh, I I wanted to talk about the labor implications of having now, mind you. We've been operating on the assumption that these mecha are large, like Titanic level mm -hmm. sizes. Mecha aren't always that size, but I'm operating under the assumption that they are, right? And in this regard, I agree, Daniel, even though the pyramids were built well before 300 BC, yeah, that's what the fuck we should be thinking about is, yo, the level of like labor that went into some of the like, okay, do y'all know the city-state of Tyre, T-Y-R-E? Yeah, I don't know much about it, but I, I've heard of it. Okay, so that used to be an island, and then Rome decided to conquer it, and they couldn't really get into It's a very impregnable fortress. They're like, ah, can't really get there. So they built an entire land bridge that still exists. Like, they literally dredged up the earth itself and then made land over to Tyre, just so they could conquer it. And that's what they were doing with just regular ass people. Now let's imagine the world when they have access to Mecca, the size of buildings or Mecca that are massive in some capacity. Like, yes, Daniel, labor is drastically changed, which also I think is fascinating because now you have weapons of war that are simultaneously your deterrence, but also, yeah, they're in charge of like labor. They're in charge of like public works because People were remarkably intelligent even back then. You know, we tend to see the past as this kind of backward, ignorant time, but people were still incredibly curious. People were still incredibly good at doing what they were doing. I mean, Roman soldier legionnaires, especially, they had this reputation of being amazing engineers and being able to create like fortresses out of the middle of nowhere because they had abundant resources and crazy good training with engineering and architecture and stuff like that. And they had the workforce to make it happen. And what happens when you had a fucking robot to that? I don't know. Those are the implications we got to talk about, you know? So is your tenant that the implications of labor with the large machines? I mean, 
Yes, basically. Okay. Um, <laughs> what I wanted to do here is expand the scope of the story that we're telling with these giant mecha in that this is not just, you know, like rock'em sock'em robots, right? These things are used in so many different ways that it's not just about combat. It's also about like, hey, we could dig this trench or build this dam with hundreds, if not thousands of laborers, or we can do a large portion of this in, you know, like a fraction of the time with our giant mecha. You know, like the, the implications of having even just one in a society that needs civil works projects completed is absolutely crazy. It's massive. So um, what we could probably assume from this is that the machines themselves maybe have different biological functions. Like I could imagine one country having access to one that's just extremely deadly for whatever reason. Maybe it's like mm. almost feral in the way that it functions. But then you might have yeah. one that has some sort of extremely strong exoskeleton. So it's useful in digging mm. through rock. So that one has been prized mm. because of its you know, capabilities for constructing things. Mm. And so I could even see between these empires, because I'm getting the sense that this is a lot of protagonists are probably nation state actors. Um, I could imagine them sharing um, access rights to these machines or bartering. Yeah. You know? That's cool. Yeah. Oh, like you yeah. trade a bunch of resources to get like a team that will pilot this mech for you. And I imagine mm. there would also be a lot of like safety uh Blood treaties and well, well that too but like but like agreements and like like we're letting your mech into our territory but if yeah, you do yeah. anything that looks suspicious like yeah. we're gonna be on your ass about it right. yeah diplomacy utterly changes uh transport utterly changes and and i agree i think the idea that you're creating like trade deals where it's like look we'll help you with this public works project but You've got to pay for it, which means that you've got to sacrifice X amount of people in order to do so, right? And yeah. that is like really fascinating if you're looking at it just from like a purely economic standpoint or a diplomatic standpoint as well, right? Yeah, which is like a horrifying mental image of like, well, we need to build this uh, massive like temple. So, you know, we got to get all these slaves together and have some mm -hmm. like massive blood ceremony to power this mech for this building that doesn't really need to exist. Mm. But, so you, you say that, right? As though like people weren't already sacrificed in the name of labor. Anyway, oh, I, I know. know. Like, I know. Yeah. But like, I, the I, more, like, like the visual literal. of it, like literally yeah. gathering a mm hundred -hmm. plus slaves in mm. a, in an area and like having a mass slaughter of them. Yeah. Which mm -hmm. pouring them into some machine, oh, or maybe it has to be fed the feral one. Yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of like that where you're like, yeah. yeah, you just shovel people into a furnace, right, to to power this giant mech. Effectively, right, it's not actually a furnace necessarily, but at the same time, I have to imagine that they are approaching this from a level of like the one thing that we can throw at this project is people, and like we're going to lose people in terms of that, and and also maybe not, maybe they're like. Ah, do we really need this? Like we could do this. Sure. And I'm sure that some people would be a little bit looser with, you know, like, oh yeah, we, we could sacrifice a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people, mm -hmm. or like whatever. But there's also going to be people like, ah, we can just do it ourselves. You know, like we, we don't want our people to get too soft and reliant on this Mecca. Right. Like, I think that there, there's like a balance to be, to be had when it comes to this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, another sort of implication of like the blood sacrifice and the the limited warfare now and so on is like 
I could still see a group using their mech to slaughter enemy states in order to get the blood for fuel. Like maybe somebody who isn't willing to uh, compromise Mm. or sign treaties or Uh uh, do anything to that effect. They're sort of acting on their own to like, maybe they're a very small Mm. group and they don't have like the the literal human resources to sacrifice mm, to this thing mm. that they have. So they need to go and like pillage other neighboring areas. I like that idea of, a, um, a, a, what do you call it? A dark horse kind of, I don't know what oh, yeah. action it would be. Um, it could even create a new one. It doesn't exist in previous history that yeah. has decided to like fuck diplomacy. I'm just going to literally destroy everything. And that person's mm. mech happens to be extremely powerful in some a unique way. Yeah. Yeah. Like some bloodthirsty warlord type who mm-hmm. right. just craves that that power and basically has this machine and feels like they it's their right to use it, so they're gonna mm-hmm. do what they need to do to power it. I right. can see him being very um, guerrilla tactics sort of person. That's why he's successful. Like whereas the other empires are probably used to amassing armies, and now this has shifted because mm-hmm. of the way their machines work. Like perhaps he's more about terroristic efforts. Yeah, I could see that too. Like maybe the mech that uh, this person has like relates to that in some way. Like maybe it is like mm-hmm. the vicious feral one that you were talking about, or it's something mm-hmm. that has like something very deadly associated with it. Yeah, or fast moving or what have you. Maybe it can fly. Yeah, I was thinking like poison or disease too. Could yeah. be interesting. Like uh, as soon as you said guerrilla tactics, I definitely thought of like a stealth type uh, mech. Mm-hmm. You know, like all of a sudden it comes out of nowhere. Uh-huh. I also like the idea, like, okay, th- this does a couple of things. One, it absolutely consolidates power to like who has these things. Because like if you're a nation state and you don't have one of these mecha, you have to have something that is incredibly valuable or you have to be like insane in some way in order to hold on to power. Because yeah, mm-hmm. Brittany's absolutely right. Like even the more quote unquote peaceful kingdoms or, or empires that have these things, they're going to be like, look, we want more resources. Like you can be under our umbrella. Like I, I don't see a way where like borders of empires don't just expand. Right. Mm-hmm. And additionally, what this kind of like rogue agent suggests is, you know, it, it flies in the face of the currently, well, the now currently accepted format of combat, which is single combat. So this person is absolutely villainous in the eyes of the world at large because they're not willing to play that kind of one-on-one combat game that they've all agreed upon right because the reason i was interested in kind of a one-on-one combat situation as well is the implication that hey we don't want to destroy these mechs yes the tenant says they're very hard to destroy but i also imagine that this means that the mecha can destroy other mecha and because these things are so rare and because these things are so incredibly difficult to find destroying a mecha outright is like not the way to go so most people are like hey if i surrender you have to let me pay a ransom or you know i'm going to give you the mech because it's better to not destroy this thing that is so incredibly difficult to find right and i think that that is also an aspect that i'm kind of interested in exploring as well makes me wonder if this um particular renegade sort of mech um is actually interested in eating the other ones mm. oh yeah yeah Given yeah. that we had talked about, like, what if these mechs kind of draw in their pilots eventually, or there's some sort of merging, like, maybe oh. it's capable of doing that with other mechs, or maybe even all of the mechs are capable, but this one, for whatever reason, like, craves mm. it and seeks mm-hmm. it out. 
It might be related right. to its disease-producing abilities if it has that. So I can, yeah. I can imagine, so if you've got like a large country that has a very powerful weapon of mass destruction and you don't have a large army to fight them, and so you can't really do this mass-scale combat, I can imagine, you know, it diseasing an area, weakening the place, and then coming in and slaughtering. That might be its method of yeah. Care, you know. Yeah, I'm picturing like a, a breath weapon sort of where it just like breathes out this like poison cloud or something over the mm. land. And it's not just like affecting people, but it could also kill the crops and lead to famine mm. and just weaken the overall state. Mm. Mm. It's funny you go breath weapon. I was definitely thinking of like a paralytic like stinger or something like that, right? One that like just paralyzes. If we're going like a poisonous route or something, you have like both that. because yeah. my concept is that um, you want to weaken the the rest of the population, yeah, and organize against you. But the stinger could be useful against the other mechs, right? Yeah. So we're just creating a straight up war criminal. Then got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got that's you. that's the route that I always go. So. <laughs> creating a war criminal, I would laugh. Except yeah. that's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much I, yeah. i'm playing one in rpg right now it's good times <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh man um all right so is that all of our tenants no 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 daniel you still got to give your second one don't you uh-huh all right so what have we got what is your second tenant sir so i was interested in um the invention of uh, early algorithm for uh, detecting prime numbers called the sieve of eratosthenes this particular mathematician discovered one of the first algorithms that lets you reliably predict prime numbers. And I want that to be essential to understanding how to interface with these creatures or in some way control them, that the early mathematicians are critical to this and particularly the, the prime numbers. Interesting. That's a really cool name. I don't understand anything about it, but I like how it sounds. <laughs> I like the name too. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. What this kind of does, though, it's still like, yes, cool name, very cool concept. I can't help but think historically this might still be reinforcing kind of like some of the things that are standard in history, right? Because algebra and like mathematical equations stuff, they kind of come from like the Tigris-Euphrates area, right? Like they kind of come from that cradle of civilization, so what that would mean is that let's say that it were to land in, you know, like uh, the Americas, they wouldn't necessarily have, well, th- th- it's, it's a little bit more complicated if we stick to a specific algorithm for prime numbers. You know what I mean? I'm not going to say no to that, but I, I want to point out that that still will dramatically favor like that cradle of civilization area in terms of like who is able to pilot those mecha. I'm not sure I understand what you mean. So, so if you're if you're talking about a specific algorithm, a specific equation that is necessary to pilot these mecha, that's what you're suggesting here, right? To control them or pilot them, yeah. Right. So, so that would mean that where that algorithm originated from has to then spread to other places. So, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, it becomes more consolidated to Europe and Africa again compared to like if it weren't reliant on that so now we have to look at how information spreads because now the americas won't have access to mecca until you know far later 
and stuff like that. Like that's one thing that we would have to consider when we think about mm-hmm. this. Another another way to think about it is what if these cultures may discover it on their own, like independent mm-hmm. of this, uh, whether it's because of the introduction of the mechs or maybe they had in our alt history world, like they had discovered these things, but because of maybe the lack of record keeping, they just weren't able mm-hmm. to show that in the future. Sure. I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm getting at in that um, the discovery of this algorithm probably didn't have as many practical applications. For example, now it's used to test like computer performance. So mm-hmm. you could never predict like its particular use case because the technology didn't exist. But if these mechs exist, you'd have an immediate practical application. And right. also because transportation would be dramatically different, they could start developing mm-hmm. technologies that they wouldn't have been able to earlier. Um, mm-hmm it's more likely that this algorithm would be independently discovered in various places. Mm-hmm. Um, but my overall point is that the early mathematicians are vitally important. So it's not like yeah. you have kingmakers and nation state actors who are in gotcha. charge of the economy and the government, but they almost have to rely on these mathematicians like wizards. So they're right. trying to introduce them as like, this is the spellcasters of the setting who have the mm. secret language speak to these machines and properly interface right. outfit people with them. Yeah, that is cool. There's a shifting priority is what you're really interested in kind of exploring here, right? Like in terms of what what cultures value effectively. That and and um, the prime numbers have to be vitally important. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I, I can jibe with that idea that suddenly, you know, like academics, especially mathematicians are suddenly way more valuable in this particular setting. Because there is a very large incentive to make sure that they understand how these robots work. Mm-hmm. Or mecha. They're not robots. They're biomechanical at this point. Yeah. Are these mathematicians, are they literally the only ones who can pilot the mecha? Or is it more of a general communication control thing? Like they don't necessarily have to be in the pilot seat. How do you envision that? I just imagine that they're the ones who understand how to interface someone with it because of the, um, okay. the math involved. So like... You can have other people piloting them, but the the mathematicians are the ones who get how this works, mm-hmm. and they know there's some pattern involved, and it maps okay. to the prime numbers. Can, can we also take a moment to consider like what the process for becoming a pilot for one of these things must be like? Like whether or not it's like a massive honor to be a pilot. It's a it's a duty that needs to be performed. Like who is responsible for piloting these things, and why? Like is it just kings? Uh, is it, you know, like the, the working class, so to speak, or like there is a specific class of pilot that exists. Like there's so many implications and questions that we can explore by figuring out who the pilots are as well. It's also like, does it need a a single pilot? Is this something where it has to be like a group that is sacrificed to this thing? Are Mm. the pilots like killed during this process? Um, Mm. do they need pilots in the pilot seat or do they take commands from these mathematicians uh, remotely yeah. Ooh. also a great question yeah i like i like the answer to that should be yes <laughs> <laughs> right like why not mm-hmm. each country has a different they've maybe they've each developed a different practical application of the science or the math that's involved mm. yeah that i can really get behind you know like that to me is really interesting to see how each culture kind of works in their own method of piloting. Right. And that way you can have things like, in one case, 
the mathematician decides there needs to be a, this number of people sacrificed according to the primes. Mm-hmm. You know, another one is like, we need to divide your body into this number of pieces according to the primes and connect okay. all the nodes, that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's maybe horrifying. the deck has a prime number and that's the number of things involved with it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this one has seven, mm-hmm. 27, you know, whatever numbers align. Yeah. It could also be like, um, you were saying how each area or each mathematician kind of figures out different ways to interface like maybe there is a way of doing this with really minimal casualties but it requires a lot of uh intensive research and maybe nobody's figured it out yet Mm. or maybe one group has Mm. and like what are the other groups going to think when they when they learn that too yeah i think a big responsibility of the mathematicians that's related to this is like how many people are we going to need for this job and i mean that literally like how many sacrifices? Because like, imagine going into combat, like how long is this combat going to be? How many people do we need to genuinely like prepare for this thing? And mind you, like, I'm also imagining it's kind of like a battery where it's like just moving this thing to the battlefield that you're trying to get to is going to require blood. And then to mm-hmm. make it combat ready requires a lot more blood. And then, you know, like Matt, yeah, Daniel, I think that by focusing on mathematicians here, all of that math that needs to go into that like is vital to understanding how this world works i mean i'm thinking too like you have the ancient world fascinations of things like you know a golden mean and other um you know mathematical things that are seen as divine and i can imagine the functioning of these machines that the secret is that they they have a pattern to them so like i was saying like you could have one where its prime is 43 and so the way that you have to um, pilot it involves 43 points of articulation or something. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like they're discovering these bizarre patterns and the algorithm lets them figure out, okay, this mech is this prime. And so all the things we do with it involve this math. And of course it sounds like all those things will be grotesque in some way because it involves right. blood, which makes mm-hmm. the mathematicians more like, almost like cultish, which is kind of cool. You yeah. Know? They're like necromancers almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. I also have to tell you something dumb because like in my brain, I'm like, okay, what's the reasoning behind the Mecca, you know, utilizing these particular numbers, you know, that Marge Simpson meme where she just has the potato and she's like, I just think they're neat. Like, that's what my brain thought of when you're like, oh, why do they have this? Why is this number associated? I just think they're neat. Like, that's what the Mecca says. Like, I I just think I want seven people to be sacrificed in my name. I just think it's a cool idea, you know? So that's where my dumb brain went. Well, I mean, there's, there's so many rationalizations, you know, like in a mystery about the pattern, right? So, um, I mean, of actual prime numbers. So, so like I can imagine there being a divine explanation in ancient times. And there probably was, <laughs> yeah, as opposed to the way we view it now. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, like there, there was a greater reliance on alchemy back then, right? Where it's like, we know that we can transmute things. Don't worry, guys. You give me this thing, I'm gonna turn it into gold for you. Don't worry about it, you know. Or, um, what, what's the, you mentioned the golden thing before, Daniel? Is that is that like the triangle thing where we you see triangles reliably in nature and they replicate and duplicate all over the place? I think it's the circle thing. Yeah, it's the spiral thingy that everything everything in nature kind of fits into. Oh, you mean Uzumaki? So your dad turns into a snail man and like turns himself into a big spiral? <laughs> no, like, you know that image where it shows like a, a snail shell shape? Yes. And you can divide it in a certain way that creates that spiral. Like, I'm not a math person. Like, that's what that is. Like, and if you look at a lot of things in nature, they oh, all have that yes. pattern inside. Yeah. 
Gotcha. Um, so okay. Googling it real quick. The golden ratio also knows the golden mean. A golden section yeah. of the proportion is symbolized by the Greek letter phi. You know, it's, it's a rational number. It, it has a lot of like mystical implications, but it is a mathematical thing, you know. Is that the yeah, Fibonacci? It says it's closely related to the Fibonacci. Oh, okay. Thank you. Okay. That's, that's what I was thinking of, Courtney. I couldn't remember mm-hmm. the name of it. Yes, that's what I had in mind as well. Mm-hmm. I also know that there's like, this is much, much later in history, but I also know that like there are a bunch of cults that are created out of math, right? Like they are fascinated with like, right. there is a divine way to rule the world through math. Mm-hmm. That's and, what I'm thinking for these yeah. mathematicians too, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's why I want to like try and drill down a little bit in this particular topic. Because like, I think that when we look at it that way, to me, it becomes a lot more interesting, a lot more relatable. I'm like, okay, I know what the fuck you're talking about now. I'm in. And I think too, like when you have, you should still have sort of, it's sort of changed the way religions develop, I think, because they mm. would have some basis in, in I don't want to say rationality, but they'd have some basis in things that relate to actual nature and science as opposed to mm-hmm. explanations for things that relate to nature and science with no basis for it. Right. Mm-hmm. So like faith requires you to in some ways just accept the thing and not really understand how it works. Um, whereas in this case, they have to understand how the thing works in order for there to be a practical application. But the mathematicians probably also have a very mystical view of it, that it is it works this way. And that is a divine fact. You know, mm-hmm. it also kind of mirrors historical like in knowledge or out knowledge, because like the priests who wielded power in Christianity, they wielded the power because the majority of people didn't speak Latin and they certainly didn't read Latin. And so the people themselves were entirely reliant on the translation from the priest class, right? Like from the clergy. And so that obviously became a lot more of a, uh, a sore spot once, you know, the printing press became more readily available and you had like massive reformations. But I think what you can see here in, in parallel that we're seeing is, you know, like maybe the layman, the regular people see this kind of mathematical religion that we're talking about and they view it with a far more mystical sense than the actual mathematician clergy that we're talking about here. And this is true of like math in general as well, right? Like people often see math as magic in some cases, right? And I, I see that there's some easy parallels that we can draw here as well. Right, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Should we move on to our recap? Yes, I was just about to say that. Yeah, before we get into the twist for this episode. So, Courtney, start us off. What was your first tenet? Uh, that was that these mechs are uh, powered by blood. <laughs> and that is absolutely been integral yeah. to the world that we see for sure. Mm-hmm. I feel satisfied with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Daniel, you went second. What was your first tenet? Um, they have a living mortal interior, but are not carbon-based life forms. I feel like we've definitely explored that pretty well. What do you think? Um, the carbon-based, I don't think we touched on, not, yeah. not mm-hmm. carbon-based, because that could mean things like, I mean, I, that could just be a stylistic thing, though. Like, this one's silicon. This one's made of a weird mm-hmm. liquid that's not from this planet. But I just, it would give the kind of feeling of biblical angel, you know, which is mm-hmm. my intent anyway. So it could gotcha. be stylistic. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's something that will reveal itself once we kind of uh, get the twist going. Or maybe once we uh, move into factions next episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking, like, instead of factions, potentially what we could do is each do a mecha. Obviously. Yeah. 
obviously that's what we're going to do, Courtney, because we're basically creating a nation state at that point, right? By creating a Mecca. Mm -hmm. Effectively, right? Because it's not like, it's not like, like, all right, my Mecca is at the bottom of the sea. It hasn't been discovered yet. Like, no, no one's going to be doing that shit. You can also um, consider, along with choosing a Mecca, creating a new country um, Mm -hmm. or taking an existing one and then maybe giving a spin to how it's changed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Man, uh, I, I'm I'm getting into more stuff I want to talk about, so I'm just going to move on to my first tenet before I blab more. Okay, so first tenet of mine was mass scale warfare no longer exists as war has been relegated to honorable single combat between Mecca. Um, that is something that I think we can develop more, but I'm happy with where we are with it right now. I think that that one did a good job of setting the stage for this being kind of a stalemate of power, you know, in the yeah. in the world. Okay. Yeah, I think what it also helped, uh, Courtney, you you mentioned this as well, and something that I thought was really cool was like the trade agreements that are involved, like the mm-hmm. kind of like implications of diplomacy that are involved with having this kind of changed warfare and changed landscape of what the war would even look like. Mm-hmm. And then you know, obviously, if we're if we're making parallels to the real world. War didn't stop just because we have nuclear bombs, right? Like conventional war still happens. It's just like, uh, do we really want to like send the robot this time? Nah, we'll just fight it like normal. You know, anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting off track again. So Courtney, go ahead and hit us with your second tenant, which was. Oh, that was the, the mechs didn't necessarily all drop into one populated region or civilization, but they're scattered around the earth um, and may not all be discovered or active yet. Hmm. Which I think we have definitely touched on in terms of like, they're not all grouped up in, you know, Rome or Europe. They're really right. spread around and I think we could play with that more next time. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that completely. Yeah, like I think that the factions that we create next time are going to be pretty interesting. So Daniel, what was your second tenant? Um, the, the sieve of Eratosthenes is very important to the functioning, interfacing with the machines and that they have a relationship to the prime numbers mm-hmm. i like how we resolve that with like these mathematician warlord yeah, types yeah. basically mathematician <laughs> like, wizards you know? yeah yeah mathomancers or arithmomancers <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah yeah i mean it mm. could very well be too that there's nothing mystical about them but it's just that it feels that way you know which is kind of yeah. the same that we yeah, feel yeah, about yeah. scientists today anyway Right. That, that's what I was saying earlier about like how, you know, people view math as magic sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. or even how we even look at AI sometimes. Right. That feels kind of magical. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great. OK. Uh, my second tenet was very simple and I think it's totally fine. But uh, the, the advent of Mecca have completely changed how labor is seen, like the very landscape of the world itself has been changed entirely due to the labor that these mecha can produce. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we'll be getting more into that too. Like as we mm-hmm. build out our things next time and like what mm-hmm. the buildings and, and technology looks like. Oh, almost certainly. Yeah. hundred um, percent. Th- it's funny. You should mention that. The one thing I did, I was thinking about is like, people are absolutely going to be building like stuff or like, they're going to be painting their mecha. They're going to be like putting stuff onto their mecca you know like mm-hmm. I, i'm just imagining that they're creating like platforms that people can ride on on this mech all sorts of different things that you can change that people are going to be like augmenting their mecca to suit their needs or the need at hand as best as possible you know mm-hmm. yeah all right 
So that does it for our recap. Uh, I'm very excited for part two of this particular episode, which reminds me, guess what? We've got a roll for that sweet, sweet twist. So our twist this time is going to be... Oh, this one's lame. I don't know about this one. All right, all right. I rolled everything has a scientific explanation. And considering Daniel's last tenet, I feel like this is very unsatisfying to me. Um, I wonder if it can be taken to some um, higher extreme, though. Mm-hmm. Mm. All right. Well, we're going to roll into that next episode. But we can see some directions for that, potentially. Yeah. So. Oh, for sure. But you're going to make me do research on math and the history of math. And I'm like, damn you, Daniel. Damn you. Makes <laughs> uh, me think, like, okay, well, how can I connect diseases to the prime numbers? And I think, I think that might be. Mm-hmm. Hmm, you, know? Mm-hmm. you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tie it into like religious math or like religious explanations and just. Sacred geometry type stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or, or like even just like. There's seven deadly sins. Seven is a prime number. Mm. You know, like I I might just go straight conspiratorial with my reconciliation next time. I'm going to be the Daniel of next episode, perhaps. We'll find out, I suppose, next time. Speaking of next time, thank you all so very much for listening. That's going to do it for this episode of World Build with us. Hey, do you all have a prompt that you want us to world build for you? Or you just want to see what direction we'll take it? We've got a website worldbuildwithus.com where you can click the link follow the instructions and within a reasonable amount of time we'll be building your world if you want to follow us on social media we're over on x at let's world build i guess while it's still there uh if you want to join our discord we've got a discord we've also got a youtube if you want to come and do all the youtube stuff subscribe like etc there's a bell that you have to ring apparently i don't know anything about that And of course, if you're feeling particularly generous, like our patron Cam, whose episode this was, then you can go to our Patreon and join like our newest patron, Sean. So a big thank you to your continued support patrons. We respect you deeply and thank you for all the love that you show through monetary compensation. But if you're not into receiving love through monetary compensation, guess what? We've got world built with us exclusive stuff on the Patreon, including the aphid lounge too hot for broadcast. And a, if you want to be more active in the discord, we've got a patron only discord chat as well. There's other stuff as well, including a second episode, which obviously we're getting to cams next time, but with all that out the way, uh, I just want to remind everyone that we love you very much. We're going to get through this together until next week. 